Welcome to Tuning Into the Forest, a podcast by the Faculty of Forestry at UBC. My name is Estefania Milla Moreno, and I'll be hosting a series of conversations about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in nature. I want to start by acknowledging that this program is being recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Muscan people. In this first episode, I talk to two professors of the Faculty of Forestry that are leading the way in terms of challenging conversations, trainings, and ultimately, new policies. Dr. Sarah Gergel is a full professor and the first Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Faculty of Forestry. Her lab studies the impact of human activities on landscape dynamics. Dr. Hisham Serifi is an Associate Professor and was recently appointed as the incoming Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion of the Faculty. His lab studies the intersection of technology, energy, and the environment. Now I invite you to join us in this interesting conversation. How are you both? Oh, doing fine. Just uh, getting back into the swing of things after the holidays and trying to get ready for teaching. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, just thinking about uh, what the semester is going to look like. I'm on sabbatical this semester. So uh, this is my first first work meeting, I guess, after a nice long holiday break. <laughs> That's nice to hear. How are you so, doing, Stefania? How was your I'm break? Doing, I'm doing well. It's always tricky to transition back to, to the normality, but it's, <laughs> I'm grateful to be healthy and, and sending good vibes to, to all the people that I know that these are challenging times. So let's get to, to talk a little bit about you both. Can you tell us when did you start working on EDI? Throughout this program, I will refer to EDI or JEDI for Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. It's just for short. Um, resources and awareness in your, in your academic career. was thinking about the two obvious answers are uh, when I began when I began serving as associate dean for diversity and inclusion that was my first paid position and so I felt like it was a it was a real privilege to be able to get paid to do the things that I would want to do anyway and have that be part of my uh, portfolio so that that was that was pretty fantastic I would say I did a lot of work in college. I was involved with a wide variety of groups interested in environmental issues, uh, animal welfare and protection, as well as feminism. And so that was uh, obviously unpaid volunteer work, more activism work. And so that would th- those two things I think would be 
the, the, the obvious answer. Dr. Sara also shared with us uh, some gratitude words for her parents, and here's what she said. I, it really got me thinking a lot about all the experiences I had uh, as a child and how much I owe to my parents for how they raised me. And uh, it, it really got me thinking about a lot of experiences that I had growing up in Ohio and what that meant and how that made me want to do these things. And also, it taught me so many things, but also left a lot of things out, which I've been trying to relearn and unlearn now. So thank you, Sada. Yeah, I guess I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, over the last couple of days as well. Um, and so like Sarah, I would say, you know, there's kind of different ways of approaching that question of how this all started, right? So part of that is to say, well, professionally, formally, only very recently, um, Sarah and I discussed a little over a year ago, the formation of an equity, diversity, and inclusion council for the Faculty of Forestry here at UBC that would be mandated to think about more strategic structural issues. Um, and I uh, began by chairing that initial formulation of that, of that council um, and am now um, stepping down as the chair of that council to take up the um, associate dean position that Sarah is, is vacating. So I have very, very big shoes to fill <laughs> and uh, uh, it's exciting and daunting at the same time. So that's sort of formally, I guess, where I would say I started in this as part of my academic life. Informally, from a professional perspective, it starts from well before that. Equity, justice issues are at the core of a lot of the research that I do. Uh, so I work on just transitions in, uh, for energy systems. I work on energy justice issues uh, in various parts of the world related to lack of access to uh, clean and modern fuels and electricity and these kinds of things. So equity and justice are part of the core work that I do. And they have been for a long time, uh, going back to my first job out of undergrad, which was to work for a really, really small nonprofit doing kind of technical analyses around nuclear issues. This is relatively right after the Cold War. And the thing that we did was we worked with community organizations living near nuclear weapons production sites who were dealing with the health and environmental effects of having these, these types of materials being worked on local industrial sites, basically, as well as uh, working with workers. And I got to meet an amazing array of community organizers through that work in the network that we, 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 were, we belonged to, uh, some of whom were longtime activists uh, in the sort of peace and disarmament movement. Others were living in Ohio uh, near the, what's called the Fernald Feed Factory, which was, a, which was a processing facility for the nuclear weapons complex, and then finding uranium in their, in their wells and kind of backing into sort of an activist role. So working a lot with those kinds of groups early on in my, in my professional life was, was quite transformative. And working for a, a, a mentor that I had at that point, uh, Dr. Arjun Markajani, who headed that institute, who had spent his entire career really trying to use his technical skills to help those who were the most marginalized um, was quite informative in sort of shaping how I then approached that equity and justice approach to my own work. 
you know, then thinking about within the academic setting, I spend a lot of time looking at issues around mentorship since coming to forestry in particular and trying to help in particular women who had not been, uh, who had not gone through the promotion and tenure process, which we had a number of junior faculty who were women in, 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 in our department, helping them get through that process of, of the promotion and tenure thing, in part because I had gone through a really rough promotion and tenure process myself. And so I was keen to, and I knew that, that there's a lot of work out there and a lot of experiences out there that, that certain people have a difficulty with that process. And, but I could also go back like Sarah and go back to my childhood, both parents, my parents who were very much on the progressive left politically and, and instilled that in us uh, growing up. Back to my experiences as a young child and immigrant into this country, whole host of things to unpack around, around that in terms of growing up as an insider outsider in a lot of the communities that I, that I lived in uh, growing up. And so that also definitely, you know, affected my political outlook all the way through, I would say. I'll Thank stop you, Hisham. It's really remarkable how parents, guardians can influence future generations. And I think that is something that we shouldn't take lightly. I am also interested in knowing about role models that you encountered in your life. Could you please talk a little bit about them? Well, I guess a couple of things. One, again, I go back to my parents and observing how they approached different aspects of life. We were, like I said, we immigrated to, to, to Canada when I was quite young and in many ways had somewhat typical immigrant experience of working our way up from relatively low income at the time through the middle class. We then took a backslide down at one point and back up again. And then just watching my parents kind of go through that process and, and realizing much later kind of all the things that had happened and in, in, in recognizing all the things that must have happened along the way in doing that and, and seeing when I was in high school, some, my, my mother left her undergrad. She never got her, her bachelor's degree initially. She went back to school to finish when I was in high school and she got her degree in peace and conflict studies when I was in high school, but while she was working a full-time job. So, and raising a family. And raising a family. You know, watching my mother go through that, dedicate that time to doing that, I think was, was really important. It, it was also the organizations I was involved in, like in high school and things like that. I, oh, you know, I was involved in various, like Sarah, various environmental, you know, uh, organizations in high school, uh, some other stuff that was more internationally focused. And so in a variety of other types of sort of socially oriented organizations and some great teachers as well, who kind of were the ones who were supporting those types of high school student organizations, which a huge shout out to those uh, teachers in, in high schools who support these kinds of organizations, because we're, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is these types of organizations can't exist. It, like, we really formally cannot function unless there's a teacher sponsor. So those teacher sponsors out there who are sponsoring environmental organizations or development uh, oriented type uh, student organizations or any type of other civic type organization at the high school level, they're spending their own time to do that. And it's, it's really great. How was for you, Sarah? Yeah, I think, uh, as we both mentioned, uh, the, the activities of our parents were so crucial. And when I think about 
all the things my parents did when I was a young person that some of which we talked about explicitly and some of which was sort of implicit in the background. I just think about how that inspired me to think about things a little more deeply and also fix the things that I didn't like. And so the, 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 first, the first thing I can really remember in that regard was uh, my mom and a bunch of other women at their church when, when we were kids, they started a daycare and it was very much a feminist daycare. And so, you know, this would have been early seventies. So this was, uh, some of these things are maybe standard operating procedure now, but at the time were kind of a big deal. So they made sure that the feminist daycare was set up where the toys weren't separated by gender, right? So any uh, little boy or little girl could play with toys and they weren't being steered towards gender stereotypes as a kid to the extent that they could they made sure that men in the church would come in to work and volunteer and read us stories so that it wasn't just women doing all the childcare or at least being seen in that in that role they would read me this might sound kind of hokey but some of the childhood stories that uh, my mom would read me there was a series in Ms magazine at the time I think it was called Stories for Free Children. Stories for Free Children by Cotin Pogrebin is a collection of short stories, fables, and fairy tales emphasizing non-sexist, multiracial, and multicultural themes in 1983. And it was uh, feminist bedtime stories, essentially. And they, 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 ran, they ran the gamut from all sorts of topics, but one that really struck me the most was a story about a young child who I think their name was X, but the, the whole story of this child was no one knew what their gender was. And so it was all about how their teachers or the people in society were just struggling with how do we treat this person because we don't know their gender. And it's just as a little kid really made me start thinking about those things early on in terms of how much are we guided about the stereotypes and the things that people expect of us or push us towards because of our gender. So those things really um, affected me a lot. I think when I was a kid, we went to a Unitarian church. And so my parents, this is so nerdy what they did. I, so most people, when they, when they choose a faith or they're raised in a faith, it's something they inherit from their parents and it's just sort of taken as a given. But my parents, when they, had, when they got married and had children, they literally went to the library and read. They read about all the different faiths and they decided that they thought Unitarians were something that they could get on board with. And so that's why we started going to the Unitarian church. And sometimes people ask me, well, what, what, is, what does it mean to be Unitarian? And sort of my glib answer is uh, that it's kind of a bunch of liberals who want to believe in God, but can't quite bring themselves to do it. And, and I say that because uh, we were really taught pluralism. So Sunday school was, we learned about Judaism one week and Buddhism the next. And there were atheists and agnostics that went to Unitarian church. And so it really kind of raised me with this idea that there's more than one way to be a good person and that your, your faith could be a part of that, but it didn't necessarily 
have to be a part of it. You could still be an ethical, moral person, even if you did not believe in God, but also that all religions had uh, unique gifts and things to contemplate and think about in terms of what it meant to be a good person. So I think that was really, really formative for me. And the other thing I say to people is that kind of explains my childhood is that I was raised a strict Unitarian. What that means in my case was uh, no guns and no Barbies, right? Mm -hmm. So I was raised with a big pacifist streak in my family, as well as feminism was a enduring framework for just how I was raised. And so uh, my mom was an artist and an art teacher as well. And so growing up outside of Cleveland, we had an amazing Cleveland Institute of Art and she got one of her degrees from there and I'd be dragged to the art museum constantly. And we'd have all sorts of discussions as I was growing up about what art is and who makes art and what kind of art is valued. And it became clear early on, even in the art world, how the contributions of men were valued more than the contributions of women, right? So if you look at what's in art galleries, it tend to be dominated by men, but also things that men produce would be called fine art, whereas some of the art that was more dominated by women would be called crafts, right? So just the names of how we refer to art just gives such a value, differential value judgment to the contribution of men versus women. So that was definitely a underlying theme and, and something that also comes back to, to my mind as I move further along in my career was the fact that I grew up near the Cuyahoga River. So the Cuyahoga River is famous for catching fire. So one of the times it caught fire was about two months after I was born. And I think that was, it, it's caught fire 12 or 13 times over history. So it's an enormously, it was an enormously polluted river. All the industrial waste and garbage is what would make the river catch on fire. And, you know, growing up next to a, not literally next to it, but um, that was definitely something that influenced my desire to get involved in ecology and to care about water quality. I'm now beginning to learn more of the history of things that weren't talked about as much and were kind of not as much of part of my education as they should have been. The fact that uh, one of the first African-American mayors of a large city in the U.S. was Carl Stokes, the mayor of Cleveland, who was really fundamental in helping clean up the Cuyahoga River and worked hard for some of the early environmental legislation, which I never learned about even when I was getting degrees in the environmental field. And then to go back and learn the history of where I was from and how important that was to some of the major laws in the U.S. today, I think was kind of a a real awakening for me in terms of understanding environmental justice and what we're not what we're not told and a history that is not made clear to us and that's from you know a person growing up with socially progressive parents and there was just so much that I was not taught and did not learn about so I think those were some of the things that really changed my view of 
what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a good leader, and that sometimes you just have to stick your, your neck out and try new things and do different things because my parents were very active in that realm. So there are two things that are showing up in the stories of Sarah and Hisham that are very important. One is how people respond to adversity, and the other is how do you see that in terms of a role model to follow. Adversity and privilege are sometimes visiting. I wonder how was uh, for you growing up and... If you can tell us a bit about some personal experiences on that respect. I have had times where I have definitely been the outsider, um, but at the same time, at times, ways in which I'm very, very privileged, right? And so the question is, what do you do with that privilege once you have it is, is really critical. Both of my parents were raised in very small town, Ohio, and They both had very abusive fathers who had problems with alcohol. And for them to make it out of small town Ohio and get a graduate degree and get to the point where, you know, they, they, they were able to, I mean, big foundation of their marriage was pacifism and having a nonviolent household. And the fact that they were able to break out of that cycle of of violence, I think is amazing. And the fact that I could go to college and get advanced degrees, I, I couldn't have done any of that without them breaking out of what can be a really problematic, positive feedback loop that some families aren't able to make, make it out of. So I feel like when my family's asking me, what country am I traveling to next? I feel like it was my parents that did the equivalent of going to the moon When I think about barriers and privilege, I uh, always just think about how grateful I am to my parents who made so much opportunity available to me, that, and I'm grateful for that head start. That's amazing, Sarah. I feel like as parents, we never really realize the impact that we can pass to our children. I just hope that, you know, because there are a lot of mistakes in the way, there is so much that we don't know. So whenever I hear stories like the one that you're sharing about your parents, it's, it's incredible. And it, it tells a lot of what you've become. Um, so it's amazing what you share. How do you balance personal life and professional life without losing it? And maybe you do lose it sometimes, and that's, that's the beauty on it. So if you can have Hisham, if you can start by sharing some of your strategies or techniques or resources strategies techniques and resources yeah <laughs> I, i think part of it is just making a commitment to it so for me you know i have a family i have uh, two kids who were born after i started my tenure track position and i simply made a choice early on that uh, there was going to be some 
sacrifices that I was going to have to make professionally, potentially, in order to maintain that balance. And I would just take the consequences of them as they came. I strongly believe in a work-life balance. I don't always follow what my beliefs are. Uh, there are times when, I, when it doesn't happen, but, but I try to maintain it. And I try to model that for my research group as well, for the people who work with me. My research group knows that pretty much, um, I, I'm probably gonna be gone from the office by about 4.30 most days, because either I'm going to pick up the kids or I'm going home to make dinner. They know that I'm probably not gonna be available uh, before 9.30 most days uh, because I might have to go drop off the kids um, and I don't schedule meetings. I try not to um, uh, do that. Um, and they know that between at 4.30 and when the kids go to bed, I'm, I'm not, you know, they won't be able to reach me. Uh, not that there's anything so urgent they would have to reach me. Uh, but if they send me an email, they know that I'm then back on usually in the evening for an hour or two to respond to any kind of stuff that needs to be dealt with or emails and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and they know that I expect them to make those same work-life choices if they need to take time, then they should take time. And I've, I have sent people and said, just go home. You need, you, you're, you don't, you, you, you're working too hard, right? Um, whatever it is can wait, right? Um, we'll figure it out, right? Uh, yeah, there's times when you've got a grant proposal due and you're just working crazy hours because it's it's just you have to get that thing done and the, the, the deadline is the deadline there's nothing much you can do about it but i also knew you know i i, I minimized my travel i didn't i didn't do the huge conference circuit the way a lot of other young faculty did i didn't do uh, a lot of the, the field work that i did i tried to do as much as i needed to to do the work right but admit as little as i could to be away from family as little as possible and recognize that 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 has meant that I, while I'm doing quite well for myself, I would say professionally, um, maybe I'm not where some other people are in terms of number of publications or invitations to give keynote addresses or whatever. And that's okay, right? That's, I am, I, am, I am where I am. I'm quite privileged to be where I am. And I, I have to always remember that. I mean, I'm, you know, that, that I'm a tenured professor at a great university living a comfortable life. So can't complain too much about, I don't work on the weekends. For example, uh, Sunday night I usually get on the computer to just prepare myself for the, for the week. But but um, for the most part, Saturday Sunday during the day, uh, I'm not on my computer. I'm doing other stuff. I imagine that some of these lifestyle strategies and techniques are also part of your daily routines, Sarah, but I, I wonder if, if you can share some of the things that have helped you in this challenge. Often when we talk about how to balance things and maintain work-life balance, often the, the, the conversation is about, well, what are your daily life hacks? And, and, I, and I maybe have some advice there, but I think it's also important to think about work-life balance in terms of like the arc of your life and the arc of your career. So the busy times are going to ebb and flow. So as long as you can maintain some ebb and flow, you have those busy times where you're maybe working too much, but then you pull back and you have the breaks. 
and you make sure you have those breaks. And I think uh, as an academic, you have the uh, privilege and luxury of a sabbatical. I know a lot of people don't take them. And I think sometimes it's because we think we're more important than we are and that nothing will proceed without us. But uh, I think it's important to take the sabbaticals that you have. I also, when I travel for work, I make sure that there's not only a professional reason that I'm traveling, but I make sure that is there a friend nearby that I haven't seen for a while? I want to visit them. Or can I tack on a vacation at the end of it? Or so I, I, think, I think the job always ebbs and flows in terms of the amount of work. And it's hard to avoid those crunch times, like field work or proposals are due, like Hisham said. But then I think planning the downtime and just blocking it out on your calendar well enough in advance, because otherwise it'll just get eaten away to nothing. But I mean, I, I think sometimes in your career and sometimes in your life, you're going to be emphasizing one over the other. And so I think it's important to kind of remember that and keep, keep that in the back, in the back of your mind. In terms of making the day-to-day -day life more sane, I've, uh, something that I've found works well for me is I work pretty hard to keep my mornings to myself for science and the slow thinking and the slow burn and the reading. And I don't always, I don't always uh, succeed, but I try really hard for that. And then try to have most of my meetings in the afternoons. And mm -hmm. so anyone that knows me knows I have a scheduling app where you can kind of book me almost any afternoon that you need me, but uh, I'm pretty protective of what I do in the morning so that I can feel like I'm making progress on my long-term goals, but also not just dealing with the next forest fire that's happening, but with dealing with what's important and not just the things that are immediately urgent. Thank you, Sarah. Hisham, one, 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 you. Thing, one, thing, one thing I want to add, you know, I was thinking back to the, the response I gave is I, I was, for various reasons, able to make those commitments, right? And and make and make the choice to say, well, if it doesn't work out, I have other things I want to do, and blah 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 blah. Uh, you know, have to recognize that not everybody's in that position. Not everybody might have a supportive supervisor who supports them having that work-life balance issue. Not everybody feels like they may have other options. Uh, not everybody feels like you know people are. There's a lot of people in academia, and this is a huge problem for us. A lot of people in academia are precarious positions, right? Being sessionals or lecturers and trying to just scrabble together something that gets them to the next part of their career. And they don't have that same luxury. I was very lucky and very fortunate that I went from PhD to a postdoc and then straight into a tenure track position. Not everybody is in that position. So just having to, I just want to make sure, you know, we recognize that a lot of pressure, especially on junior people, in order to maintain their positions, let alone move forward. And so I think that's a serious problem that we have to, as, an, as, an, you know, as academia writ large, we have to deal with and challenge. We, have, we don't always have a supportive environment for making those choices. We have expectations that parents show up, be able available for meetings at five o'clock to go to seminar, right? Because that's when the seminar speakers are. Well, that doesn't work, right? We have we have 
expectations, you know, and I'm going to speak again as a parent, right? That 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 an eight thirty a.m. meeting is a perfectly fine thing to have. Okay, so who exactly is going to get my child to school? <laughs> because they can't go to walk to school on their own yet. So it, you know, it's those kinds of things that that we do have to recognize, and 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 that and that when we do make some of those choices, they come at a professional hit. Like I said, I took that professional. I I know I took a professional hit in some aspects of my professional life by making those choices. I was able to make them. I accepted those hits. Not everybody is able to make them. I am very much in favor of diversifying academia. So all the realities can be considered. Some people need to take care and make arrangements for children, elderly people, people that need uh, companions and, and special care. And I think that a collaborative framework and supportive framework is, is the ultimate goal of academia, uh, more, more so than competition amongst peers. A place where we can empathize with uh, the realities of our peers, make adjustments in the lab, in the classroom, um, is something that will benefit us all. And I'm thriving to see that welcoming space and more realistic space. I think that the stereotypes nowadays uh, of people that work in academia are still very much limited and we should move away from them. It is very, very enlightening to hear these opinions and positionalities because it's not something that I've heard a lot. So it's always awkward to bring up the, the theme uh, and this allows that awkwardness to fade away. And I guess the, the other part of that, too, is I feel really lucky that I've managed to have great mentorship throughout my career. So I put a lot of effort into deciding where I was going to go to grad school and made a great choice and had a wonderful mentor. And, and then I, I kind of lucked out for my faculty position that I ended up in a department that was 50% women, plus or minus, and I, I was treated like a little nestling prior to tenure. They protected me from unnecessary service and they gave me great advice. And I'm only now realizing how much that was just sheer luck because it's really hard to get a job and much less critique a department from the outside as an interviewee about how well they function or how kind they are, or how, how their mentoring works. And so uh, I think if there's, if there's any way for interviewees to ask those questions during interviews, and I, I realize people may not have a choice among positions, but I think to the extent that you can think about those kind of questions that are illuminating about how people interact and do they mentor each other? Do they support each other? 
how many people have not made it through tenure and left for other positions. Perhaps because there is a power dynamic when somebody is sitting for a job interview, the searching committees should provide some information about the climate pre-tenure or about the resources available or about uh, flexibility on the first year. So those that are in the process of getting a job don't need to be asking challenging questions and can be seen as high-maintenance candidates. Maybe that's a way to tackle this situation. I think I also was lucky because ecology is a lot less competitive and more collaborative than some disciplines, right? Ecology isn't like cancer research where you're going to scoop somebody for some amazing invention that solves a health problem, right? Like ecology is so context specific that, you know, people are less likely to get scooped and less likely to uh, have only one answer. So you can do the same kind of research in different places. So um, I I do feel grateful that uh, I I lucked into some good mentorship in my department. And uh, I think that's also what has made me want to give back in terms of helping and mentoring others. And because I think, you know, if you've been, you know, beaten down and are exhausted by the time you reach tenure, you're, you may not be able to give back or you may not want to because you're, you're just tired and exhausted. So I think. Traumatized. Um, <laughs> yeah. And in some cases, for sure. So I think. Um, some of it's luck, but to the extent that uh, when people interview for jobs, if you can ask questions that get at that part of the environment, um, I think that's one bit of advice I would have for people because it's so it's so critical and influential to having a work work life balance, right? Somebody that doesn't dump all the service on the new person, right, or overload the pre tenure person with all the teaching because they think they can't say no and stuff like that. And I feel like we, you've both mentioned a lot about this, the academic support and, and the support uh, professionally, but also there is that support from family members or, you know, um, that, that support that comes from beyond academia. And, and if we think of faculty students that are studying or, or working in a place different from the place they were born. Sometimes those networks are a bit loose or are more challenging to address. Uh, there are some time zones issues. There are some cultural issues, <laughs> so many things. So, so it's also, I, I just want to give a big shout out to, to those that are in that uh, position of even more barriers. Yeah, and that's where your chosen family, so yes. not your biological family, so to speak, but your chosen family is so instrumental. So there was myself and two other women, the three of us as postdocs interviewing for jobs. And in some cases, we interviewed for the same job, but we were the such a support system for each other that mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and we all, we all 
ended up with jobs and have had great careers, but I, I don't know that we would have made it through that step without each other, egging each other on and supporting each other and, you know, having a shoulder to cry on when you don't get the job or whatever. So let's talk a little bit more about the dean's position. Why was it established? We can start that with Sara. And, and then I want to know what has been amazing and what has been hard uh, to accomplish in this position. Sara, if you yeah. can go, then I can tailor that a little bit more for Hisham as the continuation for this role. Sure, so about five years ago was when this position first started as in terms of having an associate dean to deal with diversity and inclusion and emphasize that. And it was because our dean, John Innes, saw a real need. And in that sense, I think was being quite proactive. And for a, for a small unit, we didn't necessarily have to have one. So it was something very much the position was led by him in terms of devising it. I would say this, this my answer to what, what was amazing and about it will come, the answer to that will come as no surprise to you, Stephania. Uh, the, the students that were involved in the diversity crew, one of which was you, one of the main leaders in our faculty was fantastic because I was able to start the role feeling like my Dean supported me and feeling like there was kind of a, a groundswell of uh, graduate students that also wanted to work on these issues. And so having a top down and a bottom up approach, I think was, it just felt good and it made me feel like change and good things were possible. And it also, I learned a lot working with everyone including you in the diversity crew. So that was fantastic to uh, learn more about the things that I didn't know as much about. So that was good. I think moving forward, and this will be something, uh, Hisham's a great person to uh, continue in this particular vein. I think moving forward, coming up with more formal accountability measures for things like hiring and goals for uh, hiring, a more diverse range of professors and uh, diversifying our curriculum and having real accountable goals, I think are one of the main challenges I see next moving forward. The diversity crew is a group that was formed in 2016 by a group of grad students and also Sara, who was just appointed at the time as the Associate Dean of Equity and Inclusion. It was a very fun experience. We were able to invite members outside of UBC to come and do a dance afternoon just to embrace the sense of community. We ran some workshops about unconscious biases, about positive space. Many of them were run by the amazing team of the Equity and Inclusion Office. We also did some seminars on how to fail better. Many students were actively involved and as they completed their programs, they kind of passed on their roles to other members that were joining the crew 
and this group has maintained the strength and the passion to continue to to work towards a more inclusive environment in the Faculty of Forestry. Hisham, can you comment on on what are your goals moving forward and and perhaps uh, what do you think of these last five years uh, you, with your role yeah. as a chair of the council? Yeah. So, so, so the council is only a, 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 a year old, and um, I think that Sarah has done an amazing job in these last five years, uh, working with the diversity crew and the students and the staff and others who have been involved in the diversity crew in trying to foster that that sense of inclusion within within forestry. And I'm not, I know that's not you know it's an ongoing process. And these kinds of things, but I think uh, has set us up very well for moving towards exactly what Sarah was talking about. Sarah really is, you know, has put in places the building blocks, and now it's in time to to, to really act act on those things for more structural questions around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion within the faculty. That's policies, procedures, whether that's for hiring, whether that's in thinking about our curriculum, uh, whether that's thinking about our relationships with communities, um, all of these kinds of things, whether that's thinking about uh, as well as questions around uh, our student body and how our student body uh, sees itself reflected in the faculty uh, as well. You know, is, is a big part of that hiring question, but there's more to it than than that. And as well as there's there are a number of issues that we need to deal with as 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 a faculty. I think I started that position as the chair of the council, having one idea about the things that we needed to work on. And of course, we entered a pandemic, uh, which itself raised a number of equity issues in terms of of how the workload split differently, both home and professionally. Um, and then we 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 of course then had this. Uh, 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 broader societal realization, perhaps, of something that a lot of us already kind of knew, which was these massive issues around race uh, in our society, and with uh, the, the the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement uh, bringing to the fore, not for the first time all of these issues, of course, that changed a lot of what, how, uh, not, didn't, it, it maybe accelerated or, or shifted the focus a little bit of what the council had to focus on immediately because, because that was, was the conversation that we needed to have. Um, it was always there. It just, it was a conversation that we needed to have. And some of us have lived it, seen it, experienced aspects of it for sure. Um, and so I think a, a big part of what this position will be moving forward is is working with the council and thinking through those deeper structural issues, um, and in particular how that comes uh, to play with regard to um, Indigenous students, staff, and faculty, and racialized students, staff, and faculty, and whether you like the term racialized or BIPOC or whatever. I know there's each each of those terms have people who think they are great others who think that they don't work um, and there are definitely issues with with all of those of course i i've always preferred to think about individuals with regard to their own identity as that as opposed to some 
broader category, but if we need to have a broad category, we can think about those broader categories. Um, and you know, I have my own preferences in terms of myself as well, <laughs> in terms of thinking about these things, but that's a whole other story. Um, so I think that's, that, that's really where Sarah's laid the groundwork. Sarah's done such an amazing job of setting things up and starting the processes and putting the processes in place. And, and I see myself as just trying to then um, continue that, uh, that job that she started in, in, in thinking about these structural issues. I'd like to, to ask you both about the virtual lunch in the forest, which is a part of the programming that we crafted for this past year. What did you learn or what would you like to uh, highlight from that uh, webinar series? We had uh, reduced mobility, the experience of a black student in forestry, the experience of an indigenous scholar in forestry, and also the experiences of parents in forestry. So if you could uh, talk a little bit about that, maybe we can go with Sarah and then Hisham. Well, I think I mean, if I had to summarize the, the, the biggest and best part of it, I think the, the role of active listening for people who are on paper, at least in charge, of the university and how it runs, I think we will not make the best decisions if we are not listening to people who are different from us and maybe don't have the same uh, institutional power behind their decisions. And so to me, that's the real power of the virtual lunch in the forest is part of why I do EDI work for the field of sustainability is we, we can't solve problems if, if everyone's not at the table, right? And so we need all voices at the table to solve the sustainability crisis, for example. We need all voices at the table uh, to, to run an institution that works for everyone and that makes everyone feel valued. For many of the mostly white and many of whom are male, we, we just don't necessarily even have the imagination to do that properly if we're not listening. So to me, the virtual lunch in the forest is a great way for us to, for many of us to hear different perspectives, uh, hear new perspectives, and hopefully expand our imagination for what a university can look like. Because for all its warts, I think, and its imperfections, I think it can be a wonderful a wonderful place for change and a wonderful place to think about the future. But we can't do it if it's the same old perspectives and the same old voices making all the decisions because we just don't have uh, enough imagination, I think, to lead to lead the future. So that's that's kind of how that series speaks to me. Thank you, Sarah. Ishan? Hard to, hard to, to say much more than that. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with Sarah um, that for me, it was really important that that virtual lunch in the forest series not be a bunch of us tenured faculty members spouting off a bunch of stuff about EDI 
from you know in you know coming from the positions of privilege that that we have it was really important that that we selected and and you were a big part of that stephanie in terms of thinking about who to have on that in that space that we selected people who were willing to share with us their experiences uh, and i really am grateful for them for doing that um, and to try to bring some voices that some and some conversations forward that have not been as at the forefront as they as as maybe we would like to have had them in the past. And I think to me that was a big big piece of that. And I think that's some of the feedback that we're getting is that having just created a space to have some of these conversations was really really important. Um, and that was to me the the real goal of of that was for for us to be able to stand back like. Sarah said, and just have, let those conversations happen and give that space for it. And that's what I hope to also do and continue to do as, as the Associate Dean is, is provide spaces for those conversations to happen, whether I'm part of those conversations, whether I'm there as just to listen to those conversations, or I'm not there at all. Um, but making sure that those conversations can happen and have a space to happen. We have some work to do in this, in this faculty. I think everybody recognizes that. Um, what that work is and how we go about that work will be improved by having more people be part of that conversation. That's the important thing. We will do things better if we have those conversations and more of those people at the table having those conversations. Uh, we will still make blunders. <laughs> we will still make mistakes. Uh, I certainly don't know it all. I, I never will, will pretend to. I, will, I have my experiences. I will not ever pretend to have experiences of somebody else, right? Um, whether they're from a different uh, a racial background, ethnic background, gender, sexuality, or whatever it is. Um, and so I can never, I can, I can only have the experiences that I have had um, with the background that I have. Um, and so we have to have those people in there to, to have that full conversation, to understand what the problems are and to move forward on them. That's amazing. I think that it's also a call for keeping our ears open, our hearts, and being able to be uncomfortable at times because some people might be from a very different, um, you know, position. And 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 it was great to to be able to to listen to to the speakers that were quite excited to participate and to have that opportunity to be heard. And 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 that was that was amazing. I want to ask you, what would you like to see maybe in one sentence in the next year for the Faculty of Forestry in terms of JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion? First of all, I have to say, if the council changes its name, ever changes its name formally to JEDI, I will be terribly upset as a lifelong Star Wars fan that was never the chair of the JEDI council. That would be just completely unfair uh, and I may have to may have to step down from my position just so I can run for chair of that, that council again. <laughs> but you will be the former chair of the Jedi Council. Ah, uh, this so is still... true. This is this is true. Maybe I can maybe I can maybe I can I can sneak that in there. Phew. <laughs> um, no, what do I what do I want to see? My goal for the next year to year and a half is continue the conversations and continue to provide spaces for those conversations to happen and ensure that people understand that they are being listened to and feel that they're being listened to in those conversations. And people who may have felt uncomfortable 
or reluctant to be part of those conversations, seeing that there is actually conversations happening and starting to come forward to contribute to those conversations and creating that atmosphere for that. That's number one. Number two, working on those structural issues, those policies and those procedures, the accountability questions, so that people have a sense that things are being formalized in a way that hopefully advances some of this. And number three, it's just the recognition that this is a process. We're not, there are issues to be dealt with within the faculty, some small, some larger. There's always going to be some, some issues. Uh, this is a process. Uh, in that process, I'm hoping that we are going to reach some goals that we may have around a more diverse faculty, some goals we may have around a, a faculty in which there's better understanding among groups within the faculty, but that could just be part of a long process. I would like for us to have some demonstrable actions. I would like for people to be able to say, yeah, there's been progress, but it's part of a process. Thanks, Hisham. Said. I, I would double down on everything Hisham just said. Uh, we're, we're in good hands moving forward with him being a leader. I think, honestly, my largest overarching goal for the coming year was the things I was working on last year to pass the torch and have the torch still burn in a bunch of different dimensions. And so I realized early on, this is not a topic that can be solved by one person. It takes a community. And so I'm really hoping that, and, I, and I'm super optimistic that it's everything will continue, is making sure that there's people and funding in place for all the different groups of people that have stepped up to be, uh, to, to work to be better allies and to put in the work. So the diversity crew, the diversity council, a new associate dean, positions like yourself, Estefania, as well as uh, the work with making our videos more accessible. So if all those things continue and uh, continue to take on a life of their own in the coming year, I'll just be pleased as punch because we didn't have any of that stuff, any of those people and those connections uh, five years ago, we didn't have that in place. So that will make me happy. I'll say one thing that I personally want to be working on in the coming year is some sort of JEDI certificate program for our faculty so that students can take courses regardless of their major that help expand their horizons, expand what they know about and, and improve their ability to uh, understand uh, the issues around JEDI, but also uh, take action and understand how their future careers can uh, help contribute to better outcomes, more just outcomes, more sustainable outcomes, and that EDI is, is really a fundamental part of that. Thank you, Sarah. So I will uh, just offer you both an opportunity to do a final remark to those listening to us. Um, so maybe Hisham and Sarah. 
I guess what I would like to say is that I know there are sometimes perceptions that these types of EDI initiatives are simply band-aids or they don't really dealing with the core issues, that they're just a way for an institution to try to show that it's doing something rather than actually doing something. And I think that can be true. My hope is that those people who are listening to this will uh, see that we have been making some real progress in terms of trying to create those spaces for conversation, um, trying to change some of the things that are happening within the faculty, and that we will continue to do that and they can join us in, in doing that. I have no interest in spending my time in activities that are um, the EDI equivalent of greenwashing. If I had any thought that I would not get the support from the Dean and others on the senior faculty for actually making changes, I would not be taking this position. I don't have the patience for it. I don't have the time for it. I got better things to do with my life. So join us in hopefully trying to make this place a better place. Thank you, Hisham. Yeah, I, I would add to that, that, and just reiterate what Hisham said is that I think we are, you know, we're poised to do great things in the coming years. And we want to hear from more people, not less people. And uh, we're doing our best to also have some paid positions to do this kind of work. So I hope um, it, it's extra hard right now with online remote working, but I hope that you'll reach out to someone in our faculty that you feel is doing the kind of work that you want to do. So it might be that you want to get involved with the diversity crew. It might be that serving on the council is of interest to you. It might be that uh, leading a discussion group or a book club or getting interviewed for virtual lunch in the forest is something that you can contribute to. But uh, we're, we're, we're open and ready and our ears are open uh, to hear from you. So I hope that we will continue to grow our networks because now that a lot of us have found each other in terms of who's ready to do the work and who can support each other, I think we can do a lot more that we're coming at these topics from so many different angles and as a team that I think, um, I think it's a really good time to get involved with uh, get involved with others and be part of the team because it's not a one person or a, a one, uh, it's not one group of people that can make these things happen. We've got a lot of work going on at different levels. So I encourage you to learn more and figure out how you might want to be involved. Thank you, Sarah. And with those final remarks, I want to show my appreciation to both of you. I've learned a lot. And I know that you change, I can attest that you change the climate of the faculty. And, and that's important because it gives us hope and it gives us, you know, the safety net that some of us needed to come out and, and start talking about uncomfortable themes or, you know, um, just be seen. It's important to be seen and be heard. 
And, and I want to I, thank you. I want to thank you, Estefania, for all your leadership uh, over the years. And I just am so looking forward to what you're going to do next because you've had a real impact on our faculty. Thank Agreed. You, Very much. Thank you. To end, I want to invite you all to our next episode about forest and human well-being, a conversation I had with Dr. Taya Devisher, with whom I spoke about forest therapy, mental health, ecosystem services, and people-nature connections. So just remember and keep tuning into the forest. Stories of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in nature. A podcast by the Faculty of Forestry at UBC.